Historians Jedediah S. Rogers and Matthew C. Godfrey recently co-edited a collection of essays on Latter-day Saint environmental history entitled The Earth Will Appear as the Garden of Eden. In the volume, contributors explore the relationship between members of the church and the places they settled. Editor Matthew Godfrey has written extensively about the early years of the church and lends additional light on how these connections were both physical and theological. In this episode, join us for Matthew Godfrey's perspective on the early Latter-day Saint quest to obtain and redeem a promised land. Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. Hello, this is Laura Harris-Hales, and I'm here today with Matthew Godfrey from the Church History Department. Matthew, we have spoken to you before. In fact, it was one of my favorite podcasts to research. It was about the Utah-Idaho Sugar Company. But to those who may not have listened to that episode yet, can you remind us about your educational experience and what you do professionally? Sure. So I have a PhD in history from Washington State University, where I studied American and public history. And I'm currently the managing historian and a general editor of the Joseph Smith Papers Project with the uh, Church History Department of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're going to talk today about something that we don't talk about very often. It's a little off the trodden path. We're going to talk about the Latter-day Saint relationship with the environment. How did you become interested in this topic? So before I was working at the Joseph Smith Papers, I was a historical consultant up in Missoula, Montana, and I did several projects for the federal government that touched on environmental history. Uh, So I did studies for the National Park Service and the Army Corps of Engineers and got interested in environmental history that way. And then A few years ago, uh, 2012, I think, um, one of the renowned environmental historians in the United States, Mark Fiji, published a book that's called The Republic of Nature, where he took several events in American history and looked at them through the lens of environmental history. And so he was taking events such as Brown versus Board of Education, uh, the building of the Transcontinental Railroad, and looking at what we could learn, what insights we could gain from these things if we looked at the human interactions with nature uh, surrounding these things. So it was kind of a non-traditional approach to some of these topics in American history. And it just fascinated me. And having done studies in Latter-day Saint history before with the sugar beet industry, it made me think, you know, I wish that more historians were looking at events in Latter-day Saint history with that environmental history lens as well. And so I contacted Jed Rogers, who is an old friend and colleague of mine, who is an environmental historian, that's his background, and we put together a session for the 2013 Mormon History Association Conference. And John Alley uh, of the University of Utah Press was at that session and approached us after and asked if we'd be interested in editing an anthology of essays about uh, environmental history and the Latter-day Saints. And we were very interested in it, so that's kind of how we got started on the project. I'm not going to touch on every chapter, but I'm going to touch on a couple, one of them yours. I'm going to start, though, with your co-editor's chapter. He does a chapter on the historiography of Latter-day Saint history, which for non-history speakers is what? It's basically the study of what historians have written already about the subject. When we were talking before, I said, that's mostly what historians like rather than lay people. And he goes, well, we wrote it for the historians. 
But I was able to glean some stuff out of that chapter that I found fascinating. Jedediah Rogers begins his look at the historiography by calling attention to the shift that came in the study of Latter-day Saint history with Leonard Arrington and the new generation of scholars doing research in the late 20th century who looked, quote, beyond God to explain the arc of the past. At first, I was kind of like, whoa, you know, and then I thought about it. What do you think he meant by that statement? And how did that change the way Latter-day Saint historians do their job? Yeah, it's a it's an interesting question, kind of an interesting moment in Mormon history. So uh, when Leonard Arrington wrote his dissertation um, at the University of North Carolina, which subsequently became Great Basin Kingdom, um, his seminal work on economic history of the Latter-day Saints, uh, he was one of the first Latter-day Saint historians to really uh, look at the past kind of less as what is God's hand in all of this and more in terms of what was the context of what was going on in the United States, in Utah Territory at the time that all of these things were were happening. And so it was kind of this method of looking at things, you know, such as, you know, Joseph Smith and the Word of Wisdom, for example, and saying, what was going on in the United States at this time that might have prompted Joseph Smith to ask questions about health and what we should eat and what we should drink and what we should avoid? And so, it, it was a way of looking at history um, less as, you know, God's hand is governing everything that's going on with Latter-day Saints and more of what's kind of the uh, fuller context behind these things. Because I think we know that things don't happen in a vacuum. There, there are things that surround us, events that occur in our lives that cause us to, to ask questions. And so, what I think Arrington and then those who followed in what became known as the New Mormon History uh, were looking at is kind of less of the spiritual aspects and more of the material aspects um, of history with the Latter-day Saints. Would you say that they infused or reinfuse this concept of agency into what these early members of the church were doing because they were asking certain questions that led them in certain directions. And it wasn't just that they were getting revelations out of the blue and there was no interpretation internally. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it really does... Uh, show how, you know, what's going on around a person's life influences the questions that they might ask of God or the things that they might think about themselves. And so, certainly, I think agency was an important part of it. I think the the human aspect of Latter-day Saint history was an important part as well. Um, because I think, you know, there are some studies that were done about Joseph Smith and others, and we we still see this sometimes today, where Joseph Smith is kind of mythologized, you know, he's kind of portrayed as this perfect person who almost doesn't seem human. And I think when you study some of these things about context, about agency, then it shows that, you know, these individuals really aren't that different from us today. So I think that's a that's a part of it as well. Jedediah Rogers also lays a framework that is really important for understanding the choices made by Utahns in the 19th century, early 20th century, and also for your chapter where we're going to go back and talk about Nauvoo and Missouri. He talks about the Utah Saints, or the Saints coming to Utah in 1847, and desertifying Zion. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? When Jed talks about this, he's actually uh, using a phrase that Jared Farmer um, coined in his book on Zion's Mount, um, which is an environmental history of kind of Utah Valley and, and Mount Timpanogos. What Jared Farmer argued is that when the saints came here in 1847, the Great Basin wasn't this desolate desert. 
Um, it was kind of this region where you had Utah Lake to the south, you had the Great Salt Lake, you had the Jordan River, um, you had Native Americans who were living here, who were living off the land, uh, fishing in the lake. And so it, it wasn't a place that was necessarily a barren desert. And the desertification, it's a hard word to say, <laughs> of Zion is kind of this myth that the saints uh, in the 19th century began to promote about how they came to the Great Basin. It was barren. They made it blossom like the rose through their righteousness and through their hard work. Now, certainly, you know, through their hard work, there was a lot that they developed here. Um, but I think what Jared Farmer, what Judd is getting at here is that it wasn't as barren and as awful of a place as sometimes the saints made it out to be as they kind of looked back on it. And they were perhaps influenced in, in you know, making this uh, claim by looking at these early years, which really were tough years, you know, as they're trying to get crops growing and, and everything else. And that probably influenced the way that they regarded the valley when they when they entered it, as they're looking back on that. They're thinking, boy, those those were some tough times. This must have been a really barren place when we came here. There's another idea that he introduces, and that's the idea of the search for land and water. How central is that to the early Latter-day Saints story? I think certainly the search for land is very central to the early Latter-day Saints, going back to Joseph Smith. And it all kind of revolves around the notion of gathering, the gathering of Israel, um, that the Latter-day Saints really did perceive themselves as a kind of modern-day Israel. They were to gather the lost tribes of Israel together, gather the elect, uh, build up Zion. Everyone would gather to Zion. They'd build a temple. Jesus Christ would return again. But in order to be able to have a place for the elect to come to, you had to have land uh, to do that. So they, they started talking about the gathering. This is present in Joseph Smith's revelations um, early on, um, this idea that you're supposed to gather Israel together, and you need land to do that. This envisioning themselves as the Israelites in a modern-day situation really goes back to their attachment to the Old Testament, Mm-hmm. And that's what is the Old Testament about, but the Israelites trying to find the land of promise. Right. You're such an expert on the early period of the church. Do you see that? Them being a chosen people looking for their promised land. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's it's interesting because sometimes we look at these early saints and we think that they're most attracted to the restored church because they see in it kind of the restoration of the New Testament church, the church that Jesus Christ set up. And that certainly is a factor, but they're also attracted to Joseph Smith kind of reaching back into the Old Testament as well and restoring a lot of Old Testament practices and identifying with the Israelites of the Old Testament. And so I think they certainly saw themselves as individuals who would fulfill prophecies of, of Old Testament prophets like Isaiah about how Israel would be gathered in the last days, that they would be the means of helping to gather the elect together. And I think this spoke to a lot of them. It was something that, that they found very attractive about the restored gospel. And of course, this metaphor is amplified as they leave Nauvoo and cross the plains. They even call Brigham Young the modern-day Moses. Right. And so there's that tie to the ancient Israelites fleeing Egypt into what? A desert. Yeah. And so they're going to make it blossom as a rose. Right. Let's talk about your chapter now. It's called The Natural World and the Establishment of Zion, 1831 to 33. What were some of the prevailing 19th century Judeo-Christian views of man's relationship to the land? You know, it's it's very interesting. They had there there were views that were prevalent in the United States at this time um, about the necessity to develop land. Um, I think there were these tendencies to view what they would call wilderness or areas that were not developed, um, wild areas, you know, places with trees and forests and animals 
they'd view those as almost evil, that they were places where, you know, devils or demons might dwell, and the way to really make those locations uh, redeemed or to redeem those locations would be to cut down the trees, to plant crops, to cultivate it through agriculture. And this kind of comes out with Thomas Jefferson's views at the time of uh, agrarianism and the importance of agriculture in uh, helping people kind of reach a, a higher spiritual state, that there was something about cultivating the land that brought you closer to God. And so, uh, you know, both the Latter-day Saints and Americans in general at the time believed that the best way to utilize land would be to cultivate it, to plant crops, you know, to uh, uh, harvest those crops. That was the way that you could use the land to its highest potential. It's interesting that in Protestant culture, American culture, the Old Testament Bible, Adam, Eve, the book of Genesis, is so inculcated into our culture. Another thing that you brought up was this Puritan idea that settled America. What was that and having to do with the Garden of Eden and how persistent did that linger in American culture? Yeah, so the Puritans, when they come over to the United States uh, from England and other locations in in Europe, uh, the Puritans, the pilgrims, those who are coming over, they're really kind of seeing their settlement in the United States as being a way to establish what they would call a city on a hill, as John Winthrop put it, a place where other people would be able to perceive what they were doing, what they were establishing, and say, oh, this is kind of the ideal spiritual society. And so they were trying to create a community that would be an example to other people. And I think that's something that uh, Joseph Smith and the Latter-day Saints, um, you know, many of them are from New England. They would have been very familiar with Puritan ideas um, about these things, uh, about the necessity, like I was talking about earlier, of cultivating land. And so that really becomes key with Joseph Smith and the establishment of Zion, that um, the Zion community that they want to establish isn't that dissimilar from the city on a hill that John Winthrop wants to establish. Um, that they're both trying to establish communities that will be kind of this shining example of uh, spirituality, um, a way to show other people, this is what you can become if you obey God's commandments. When I was reading that section in your chapter, I the song Now Let Us Rejoice came into my head from W.W. Phelps, where it talks about this was, you know, this was in the first hymnal, that the earth will be like the Garden of Eden. And I thought, okay, that's what they're singing. That's what they're thinking. So we have these twin ideas of Moses looking for the promised land, the Abrahamic covenant, a land that will be for a chosen people. And then a Garden of Eden. Mm -hmm. And then a new Jerusalem is mentioned in the Book of Mormon. How early did the saints go about building a Zion community and calling it the New Jerusalem? Yeah, so like you said, this idea of a New Jerusalem is prevalent very early on um, because the Book of Mormon talks about a New Jerusalem that would be built on the American continent. And when Joseph Smith is doing his translation of the Bible in the early 1830s, part of the revelation that he receives um, from that, which we have now is the Book of Moses and the Pearl of Great Price, talks about Enoch, uh, this Old Testament prophet who establishes a Zion community. Um, and so these ideas of Zion were very prevalent in those things. They were also mentioned in several of Joseph Smith's revelations. And so really from the organization of the church in 1830 and even earlier than that, Joseph Smith and others are thinking about what do we do to establish this Zion? Where is it going to be? And what do we need to do to establish the Zion community? And so in uh, the summer of 1831, Joseph Smith receives a revelation, uh, which is section 57 in the Doctrine and Covenants, that talks about that the city of Zion would be built in Jackson County, Missouri, and that independence would be the center place of the city of Zion. 
And so it's really after that revelation is given in July of 1831 that the saints actively begin building this New Jerusalem, this city of Zion in Jackson County. For fun, because that's why we're here, if we go beyond God to explain the arc of the past having to do with the settlement of Missouri, what kind of factors would have influenced that as a choice for the New Jerusalem? Yeah, there's there's a couple of reasons why they chose Missouri. One reason, and this actually gets back into kind of the spiritual aspect, but it, it's, it is a key reason for them, is that uh, early revelations had told them that Zion would be built among the Lamanites. And the Latter-day Saints at the time um, interpreted Lamanites to mean the American Indians, that they were the descendants of the Lamanites. And so they were looking at uh, working with the American Indian groups to build the city of Zion. And so west of Missouri's border was unorganized territory where uh, a couple of different uh, Indian tribes had been relocated by the federal government. And so one reason why they're looking at Missouri is because they go out to this unorganized territory to begin preaching to these groups They don't have the necessary licenses to preach to uh, Native Americans. You had to have a license from the federal government to do that. And so they're actually kicked out of uh, Missouri. They're told you can't preach here. And so they go over uh, Missouri's western border into Jackson County. And they begin to preach the gospel to people in independence. And so there's kind of this practical reason why they chose uh, Jackson County because Oliver Cowdery and others were already there preaching the gospel. And it was close to this unorganized territory where these Indian groups lived. Uh, So that was one aspect of it. Another aspect too, is this really was kind of a beautiful place. Um, You have people uh, who aren't members of the church that later on say, well, it's no wonder that the saints chose this area to live in because it's one of the most beautiful areas and most productive agricultural areas in the United States at the time. And so that may have been a factor as well as they're looking where should Zion be established. You've mentioned a few things in this interview that have come together to influence why they would go to Missouri. You said they wanted to be by the Indians. They wanted to be in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. They needed to have empty land right. and it had to be beautiful so it could be what they imagined the garden of eden would be to set their city on the hill right have i touched on all all the things you've mentioned yeah i think so oh good <laughs> i find it interesting that we start hearing this discussion of a wilderness blossoming as a rose which we associate with utah during this period right What were Joseph and other church leaders saying about this process of taming the wilderness? So it gets back to these Judeo-Christian notions of agricultural development being the highest use of the land. And so what they were thinking is, okay, here's this location. It's a beautiful location. Uh, Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon and others describe the beauty of uh, Jackson County. But despite its beauty, it still needs to be developed so it can reach this higher use. And so they're, they're saying, okay, this place is beautiful, but we still need to plant crops. We need to develop the land. We need to bring in seeds of plants that we are growing in Ohio at the time and bring them here and plant them here so that it looks more like the eastern United States where we're from. And that when we do that, um, we're really kind of redeeming the land. We're helping the earth reach its spiritual potential. Um, And so that's why you kind of get them talking about the wilderness blossoming like a rose, where, you know, this very verdant location, you wouldn't necessarily associate that with it. But they're talking about this agricultural development. Geographer Richard Frank of Viglia in his chapter, this is a long quote, but I think it's just spot on, says, 
This settlement expansion scenario was part of an intense religious drama unfolding, a drama in which the Latter-day Saints envisioned themselves playing a central role as modern-day Israelites helping to restore the gospel of Jesus, which Joseph Smith claimed had been lost through neglect and willful disobedience. You showed how that was manifest in the early days of the church. Yeah, you know, it really is this notion of gathering the elect and creating this new Jerusalem, this Zion community where the elect can come to and gather to so that Jesus Christ can return. Okay, this next part of your chapter is so fascinating, because if you look at the revelations from this period, much of the language employed, I recognized as modern temple language. What does this say about how the saints viewed their various settlement projects during the 19th century? I think one thing it says is that they really viewed the land, nature, as ways that could tie themselves to God, that nature was very important in their relationship with God. Um, And so when they have these settlement projects, whether it's in Missouri, whether it's in Nauvoo, whether it's in the Great Basin, um, how they treat the land, how they interact with the land is key to their relationship with God. And vice versa, how the land produces um, for them is dependent on their own righteousness. So it can show God's favor with them. So if they're obeying the commandments, they're doing the things that they should do, then God will bless them with the abundance of the earth. And so it's kind of this, you know, mutual uh, relationship that they treat the land well, they interact with it in the way that they believed would allow the land to reach its highest potential. They keep God's commandments, and if they do that, then their communities will flourish, and they'll, they'll be blessed with the abundance of the earth. A lot of our listeners have probably read the book Saints that came out last year. Mm-hmm. And remember that the first attempt at building Zion didn't go all that well. Can you briefly review that experience that they had? Sure. So they they start building Zion in July of 1831. They begin to have people move there. Um, By 1833, there's about 1,200 saints who are living uh, in Zion um, in Jackson County, Missouri. And they're not the only ones there. There are people who are already living there who were not members of the church. And as more and more saints moved to the area, these people became fearful of the saints um, becoming so great in numbers that they would dominate politically. Uh, Most of the saints were from northern states, and these other settlers who were not members of the church were mainly from southern states, so there were some cultural differences as well. And all of this, coupled with the fact that I think some Latter-day Saints probably unwisely would say things to those who weren't members of the church about how this is going to be our land, this is the land God has given to us, and that kind of infuriated people as well. So it leads in July of 1833 to a mob uh, attacking the Saints printing shop that W.W. Phelps was running, um, they destroyed it, they tarred and feathered Edward Partridge, and they made the church leaders promise that they would leave uh, Jackson County, half of them by the 1st of January, 1834, the other half by April of 1834. Um, the Saints agreed to this, but then they began to look at kind of legal recourse so that they could keep their lands when the non-members in Jackson County found out that they were kind of looking into legal ways to stay in the county, this made them furious, and so they attacked the Saints' communities at the end of October of 1833, and the first week of November, they drove the Saints out of the county, and most of them went across the Missouri River into Clay County, Missouri. At this time, there were really two church centers, one in Jackson County, and one in Kirtland. Yes. So couriers are sent to Kirtland to tell Joseph and the other leaders what has happened. Let's talk about the law of consecration, because I think a thorough understanding of that and how it was practiced at that time is crucial to understand what the saints were thinking, both in Missouri and back in Kirtland, 
when this tragedy occurred. Sure, yeah. So the law of consecration um, comes in a revelation that's given to Joseph in February of 1831. And what it essentially tells the saints is that in order for the church to have money to help the poor and needy and to have money to buy land so that they can build up Zion, saints needed to consecrate their properties to the church. And this really only works in Missouri. Um, they try to implement it to some degree in Ohio. doesn't really work. So there's elements of the law of consecration that are present in Ohio, but it isn't really tried to be lived to its fullest extent um, in Ohio. It, it comes in Missouri where the saints are trying to live it. So what would happen is if you were told to move to Missouri um, to settle there, you were supposed to sell the lands that you had, um, take that money with you to Missouri. You would give that money to Edward Partridge. He would give you an inheritance, which is what they termed a plot of land um, that you could then develop and, and cultivate. And then Edward Partridge could take that money. He could buy additional lands so that more people could move there and so that those who could not afford uh, you know, to purchase land somewhere else or didn't have any money um, because they didn't have any land, they still would be able to get an inheritance. But it goes even deeper than that. How did a physical parcel of land tie someone directly to God, both in this life and the hereafter? Yeah, that's that's one of the interesting things about this. Um, so key in building the city of Zion and key in the law of consecration is that when you got this inheritance, this plot of land, it showed that um, God approved of you, and you would be your name would be recorded in the records that would be kept in heaven. And so Joseph Smith, in November of 1832, writes a letter to William W. Phelps, um, because Phelps has asked him, what should we do about people who are moving to Missouri, but they're not consecrating their property? Should we still give them an inheritance? And Joseph says, no, if they're not consecrating their property, they don't get an inheritance, and their names will not be recorded in the kingdom of heaven. And so the inheritance really becomes kind of... Uh, this physical way of tying yourself to God. If you have an inheritance, it shows that you've lived the law of consecration, that you are uh, living the commandments, and that God approves of you. And so that becomes very key in your relationship with God. Um, and I think that's one reason why the saints are so upset when they're driven from Jackson County. Uh, one reason, of course, is just because they're supposed to build the city of Zion there. But this other reason is because these inheritances, these plots of land that ties that tie them to God, are in Jackson County, and now the saints no longer possess them. And so I think that's why they work really hard to try to get their land back, and why this notion of returning to Jackson County, where these inheritances are, has such a long life uh, among Latter-day Saints, you know, Throughout the 19th century, Brigham Young's always talking about returning to Jackson County. And even today, you still hear people talk about, one day we will return there. And I think part of that is because of this notion of these plots of land tying you to God, that this is a way uh, for God to show his approval of you. In preparation for this interview, you were gracious enough to send me a couple articles you'd written on Zion's Camp, which I think ties in really well here so we can try to understand this relationship in with the land, what they were thinking when they went to Missouri, and why they had difficulties. So we call this the Zion's Camp, but what did they call it back in the 1830s? So they refer to it as the Camp of Israel, again, kind of reflecting this Old Testament uh, understanding that they had, that they were identifying themselves as Israelites. How well is this camp of Israel documented? You know, there's not a lot of contemporary sources, the sources that were created at the time in 1834 uh, when the camp of Israel uh, went from Ohio to Missouri. There's a lot of reminiscent sources about it. Um, the people that went on this expedition, um, it was something that really 
um, affected them in their lives, something that they looked back on as kind of a key spiritual moment in their lives. And so a lot of people later on wrote about it and wrote about their experiences. But these are, you know, 30, 40, 50 years after uh, the Camp of Israel occurred. But that's where we get most of our information about it. So they're writing these reminiscences 30, 40 years later. What kind of factors could have influenced how they remembered the incident? Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of things that go into how we remember things. And a lot of it depends on what's going on in our lives at the time that we're remembering something that has happened in the past, uh, what we've experienced since that time. Sometimes events will take on different meanings um, to us as we age and as we experience different things. And so I think for these people who are remembering the camp of Israel uh, or Zion's camp, you know, 40 years after the fact, many of these have been church members that, you know, were driven out of Missouri, were driven out of Nauvoo, had come to, uh, you know, the Salt Lake Valley, had seen the federal government continue in their minds to persecute them because of their practice of plural marriage. Um, And so kind of these notions of, you know, always facing persecution is something that's key for them. And so when they think back about Zion's camp, they're thinking a lot about this experience that they had and how did they see God's hand help them in kind of this trying experience of walking this great distance to Missouri, um, having, you know, mobs you know, try to prevent them from going to Missouri? Um, And how did God help them with those things? And so I think as they're reflecting back on their entire life experience, they're seeing what happens in science camp as a time when they did see God's hand in their life, um, when they were able to get closer to God and when he protected them from some of these persecutions. Let's get past some of the folklore associated with the camp of Israel before we get down to the nitty-gritty. We've heard that they had no money. Mm. Do we know how well the group was funded? Yes, we do. From outside sources, meaning members of the church who didn't go on the expedition, they contributed about $350, which isn't a lot of money. And actually, almost half of that came from one woman— Polly Vos, who lived in Massachusetts, she contributed $150 herself. So there wasn't a lot of money from outside sources. So what happened when the Camp of Israel uh, was formed, all of the members were told that they needed to consecrate their money into a general fund. And so most of the Camp of Israel was funded through the donations of the people actually participating in it. And there was roughly about $1,600 that was contributed through the consecration of this money. Was that a lot of money? Was that sufficient? It was adequate. Okay. Uh, They weren't living high on the hog on this trip, um, but they generally had enough food to eat. Um, There were some stretches, especially when they're crossing prairies, where they don't have too much to eat. But for the most part, they they had adequate food. You know how we've all played this through our mind? I imagined a chuck wagon Mm -hmm. (laughs) doing dinners. But I learned from your chapter that they were pretty much in charge of getting their own meals. Is that correct? Yeah. So the camp was divided up into different companies, uh, companies of about 10 to 12 people each. And each company was responsible for their own food. And so the captain of the company would get money from the general fund and they were supposed to buy provisions with that. And then with those provisions, you know, they would uh, provide the food for their company. Okay, silly me. I don't know how I got this in my head, but I thought the camp of Israel was going to redeem the lands. What was the actual goal? Did they have a specific goal in assembling this mass of men and traversing all these miles to Missouri? They did, and it's not so silly that you have that in your head because the revelation that commands the formation of the camp of Israel, section 103 talks about this parable of a nobleman whose land is overrun by the enemies, and so he calls up the strength of the Lord's house to go redeem the land. 
And so when we read that, we think, oh, this is what the camp of Israel was supposed to do. But I think Joseph Smith and other church leaders had a more moderate plan for the camp of Israel. And what they were hoping would happen is that the camp of Israel would march to Missouri. When they got to Missouri, they would petition the governor of Missouri, Daniel Dunklin, to call up the state militia. And the state militia would then escort the saints back to their lands in Jackson County. Once that had happened, uh, the state militia couldn't stay mustered to protect the saints. And so uh, once they were restored to the lands, the members of the camp of Israel would then remain in Jackson County to protect the saints from being driven off of their lands again. And that was really kind of the primary purpose of it. So no battles were planned. <laughs> no battles were planned. Uh, they had weapons with them that they carried, um, but Joseph Smith and others on a few different occasions reiterated that they're carrying weapons for defensive purposes only in case they are attacked. They're not planning on attacking anyone themselves. This wasn't a secret caravan. What did the Missourians think about the approach to the camp of Israel? I think it scared them. Uh, because no matter how many times Latter-day Saints said this is just a defensive measure, I think they thought there's this huge group of people coming here that are armed, and we know we just kicked their people off of these lands, so they're going to come attack us and try to get these lands back. And so you have people in Jackson County and neighboring Lafayette County that raise uh, a number of people to try to protect those citizens in Jackson County. And you have accounts in newspapers of people saying, if the Saints cross the Missouri River and come into Jackson County, they're going to get a battle and there's going to be a lot of bloodshed. And so I think the Missourians kind of prepared themselves uh, for an attack from the camp of Israel because that's what they thought they were going to do. You told us about the pie-in-the-sky desire of the camp of Israel, but the current sitting governor of Missouri, Governor Dunklin, saw several options for settling what he called the Mormon problem. What were those? So at the time that the camp of Israel was marching, there was actually a delegation of citizens from Jackson County and a delegation of Latter-day Saint leaders in Clay County that were meeting together to try to figure out how do we come to some kind of resolution for the saints being kicked out of the county. And so there were different proposals that were made. Um, the settlers of Jackson County um, said, well, you know, we'll, we'll pay you for your lands um, and then you can just live somewhere else. The saints didn't want to do this because they didn't want to sell their lands because, again, they're these inheritances that tie them to God. And so the saints came back and said, how about if you sell your lands to us and we'll pay you, um, you know, one and a half times the value of your land. And the settlers of Jackson County said, no, we don't want to do that because we don't want to move. We want to stay here. Um, but these negotiations were going on. And I think one reason why Governor Dunklin doesn't call up the state militia when uh, the saints request him to do so is because I think he wanted to see how these negotiations played out before he took what he considered to be a drastic step of calling the militia out. You mentioned that this law of consecration, this belief really hindered the saints in their ability to find a compromise. Yeah, this notion that, you know, that they needed to keep these lands and couldn't sell them um, was something that I think made it impossible for them to reach an agreement with the settlers in Jackson County. If the saints had been willing to sell their lands, I think they could have got some compensation for the lands. But Joseph Smith had been very specific in telling Edward Partridge, don't sell the lands. We need to hang on to these lands. And they end up doing so until after they're kicked out of the entire state of Missouri, which happens in 1838 and 1839. Then they begin to sell off some of the lands um, in Jackson County. But before that time, they said, nope, we're not going to sell the lands. They're ours. We're going to hang on to them because someday we'll go back and we'll get those lands again. Why did Joseph Smith disband the camp? So when they are approaching Clay County, Missouri, um, there's a delegation of men, uh, representatives from Ray County and Clay County that come into the camp, and they tell Joseph about 
this large group of people that are gathering on the other side of the Missouri River to attack the camp of Israel should they cross the river. And they basically tell Joseph, if you keep going into Jackson County, you know, there's going to be bloodshed, there's going to be attacks that happen. So Joseph is thinking about that. Um, he's also sent Orson Hyde and Parley P. Pratt to consult with Governor Dunklin. Uh, Governor Dunklin tells them, we're not going to call up the state militia. And so that kind of ends that plan. So Joseph has these things going on in his mind, but he's willing to continue marching on. But he ultimately gets a revelation, section 105 in the Doctrine and Covenants, that tells him that it's not time for the camp of Israel to redeem Zion. They've come this far, but the Lord is not going to require them to redeem Zion at that time. And so that's when he begins to disband the camp. Earlier, when we were talking about the factors that might have influenced the written accounts, you mentioned that they wanted to recall a time in their life when they had felt God. Mm-hmm. How did participants see God's hand in the endeavor itself? So there's a couple ways that they see God, God's hand in what's going on. One is just that I think as they're going to Missouri, they're making that sacrifice of their time and their money to do this. I think there's just some kind of, you know, testimony or spiritual experience that they receive that they're willing to sacrifice for their fellow church members. And I think that helps them um, kind of grasp what God is willing to do for us, for example. And so I think that teaches them a little bit more about God's nature. Um, The other thing is there are some specific experiences they have where they believe that God's hand really was present. And one of these is they're at Fishing River um, in Clay County, Missouri, and they're camped there, and they have some people that come into the camp and tell them that there's a mob of about 400 men that are going to cross the fishing river and attack them that night. When these men leave, there's this huge thunderstorm that springs up in the area. Um, Just all kinds of rain and hail and wind. And the river rises, according to Heber C. Kimball, 40 feet from the storm. And so this mob isn't able to cross the river at that time. And almost all of the participants of the Camp of Israel believed that this was God's hand protecting them, that he sent the storm so that this mob couldn't come in and attack them. So there were experiences like that where they really saw God's hand in what was going on. In the appendix, you include an address that Elder Marcus B. Nash gave in which he provides a window into current Latter-day Saint beliefs regarding nature and the environment. Why do you think it was important to include his address in your anthology? I think the primary reason is just that you don't really see um, a lot of high church leaders talk about the environment um, in our society today. And so this was really kind of a unique occasion where Elder Nash, he's a member of the First Quorum of the Seventy, spoke about the environment, spoke about what Latter-day Saint beliefs are about the environment, spoke about how we should treat the environment. And so we thought that was important just to get that kind of uh, devotional side of this, that, you know, here is a high church leader who's talking about our responsibility and our stewardship over the environment. And again, because you don't hear a lot of church leaders talk about this, we felt it was important to include that. I thought he brought up one interesting point that I've thought about quite a bit. According to Elder Nash, how does Latter-day Saint doctrine establish a different relationship between man and the earth than other Christian religions? Yeah, he he talks about a couple of things here. And just to kind of preface this, I, I think it's interesting. Back in 1967, I think, there was a scholar named Lynn White Jr. who said that most of the environmental problems throughout the world was caused because of the Judeo-Christian religion. Um, That that religious tradition and its notions of man having dominion over the environment was really one of the causes, or the major cause for environmental degradation. But Elder Nash talks in this that as Latter-day Saints, we believe that all living creations were created by God, that animals and plants even have souls, 
they are creations that we need to respect just like we respect human life. And so I think that's one teaching that differentiates us uh, from others. One of the other things that Elder Nash talks about is that, you know, the gospel teaches us that we uh, need to get rid of selfishness and selfish desires. And so key in treating the earth well um, and creating a good environment is making sure that it's a decent place to live for generations that follow. So it's kind of putting our own selfish desires aside so that those generations that follow um, have an earth where they can live and they can enjoy the scenery and the beauty of it just as much as we do. Also interesting is our view of the afterlife and where we'll be at that time. Yeah, um, because certainly we believe that the earth uh, will re- will reach a celestial state and that that is you know, where those in the celestial kingdom will live. That's another key part, that our interactions with the earth help the earth reach its celestial destiny. So just like you would help your fellow human being try to, to uh, increase their spirituality, you, you help people along in their journey to the celestial kingdom, we should do the same for the earth because it's going through that same journey. In Sarah Dance chapter, she mentioned that in Utah, the saints worshipped in the fields as much as they did in the buildings of worship, which goes right along with what you just said and what Elder Nash brought up. I got so much insight from reading your chapter and the articles that you sent me. I think it's so crucial to have context when we're trying to think of the early church because it's such a foreign time to us. What would you like Latter-day Saints to take from this discussion? I think what I'd like Latter-day Saints to take away from this is just that it is important how we interact with the earth. The early saints believed that the way that they interacted with it was key in the earth's redemption. And I think the same can be said for us today. Uh, We might not believe today that the way that we have to interact with the earth is to plant crops and develop it agriculturally, but certainly the way that we treat the earth, uh, the things that we do to make sure that it is still beautiful for generations to come, that that isn't just important for these generations, but it's also an important part of our own spirituality and our own relationship to God. So that's kind of what I hope Latter-day Saints get from this. Thank you, Matt. Thanks, Laura. I appreciate it. Be sure to check out LDSPerspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives Podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.